Hello and welcome to Making a Historian, a podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And this episode is our final episode in the mini-series that I've been calling Social Life in the Anthropocene. Uh, if you haven't listened from the beginning, um, do so. You're not going to miss out on any key facts, but ideally this mini-series is kind of a dry run of a potential lecture course that I might do. And I like to think that the lessons uh, or the podcasts hang together as some kind of organic whole. So in this, the final episode of the mini-series, I'm ending with a thing that I call uh, circadian rhythms. And in it, we deal with two topics that change alongside the other cultural changes that happen because of modernity. And this is time and the night. Uh, So a very particular kind of time. And so let's talk about time first. A big story that we might get about the change of time is that uh, two developments that are interlinked are pushing it ahead. And those are capitalism and technology. On the capitalism front, we have a story of increasing work discipline. Because the uh, actual plant of the capitalist factory is so expensive, it is in the best interest of the capitalist to make workers work as hard as they possibly can. And because of this, uh, capitalists need to develop forms of social control. The rest of the story is probably very familiar. It's all about the rise of factories. And remember, one of the big differences between factory labor and you know, traditional labor that might have happened in the home is that factory labor is temporally bounded. That means factory labor begins and ends on the clock. Workers come into the factory, and while they're there, they're working, and then at a certain time, they leave the factory. And there's been a lot written explaining how this temporal boundedness of factory labor makes sense from the perspective of the capitalist. The other side of the story is technological, and this is in some ways a little bit simpler. There are more clocks. There end up being clocks a little bit, you know, everywhere. Uh, There's clocks in public squares, clocks, of course, in factories that ring bells at particular times to tell workers when to go off and do things, when to come into work, when to take breaks, when they can leave. There are clocks in family homes, and there are clocks on people's person. People carry around pocket watches. Pocket watches are the iPods of the 18th century. And I don't just mean that because they're small, portable, and high technology. I mean that because studies of people's wages and purchasing preferences show that when working class people got a windfall, when they got a little bit of extra cash, they might shell out on expensive pocket watches, the same way that poor people today are criticized for buying iPhones. And then underneath these changes that are wrought by uh, economic changes and technological changes and structural changes, we have something more cultural. And that is that the world, as we go from the 18th to the 19th century, seems to be increasingly divided by time that particular times are becoming specialized for particular things. 
we can imagine the family home of some traditional worker as being a mixture of social life, work, free time, family life, all together in one space. You pick, take stuff up and you put it down. And now, in the modern era, these things are increasingly separated out into particular places and particular times. You go to the restaurant to eat and socialize, the club to meet with your friends, your home to be with your family. Now, I want to insist, look, that is a really crude separation of things. As you know from your own life, you can socialize at work and you can work at home. And uh, even this traditional picture of a, you know, putting out system in which rural laborers of the 17th and 18th centuries were, you know, handsomely working with their wives and children, uh, 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 that's, that's not entirely true. But I do think that there's a way that our increased attention towards time makes there be a kind of specialization of activity. And maybe to that we can add a further uh, factor, that of cultural uh, norms of punctuality and of internal time discipline. As we know from uh, people looking at Puritans, one of the big things that Puritan sects did is they insisted is that your time is not your own. It is given to you by God to do particular things. And so every moment you have to account for, literally you have to write, be able to write it down and account and show that you're doing good with it. And similarly, that same idea is now passed down to us. We too have to have some kind of time discipline. But I would like to expand this story a little bit more so that we don't talk about the usual suspects of the economy and technology and stuff like that, but we also think about how human beings as organisms relate to time and how that changes uh, with these larger changes. So for that, let's just admit the simple fact that people have a circadian rhythm. We are bounded by a daily rhythm of sleep and wakefulness that roughly corresponds to the rhythm of the light outside, of sunlight and darkness. Now, one thing about this is immediately clear, and that is that throughout the seasons, the hours of sunlight and darkness are constantly changing. And yet, the demands put upon the person in the modern economy are usually the same. You know how this pinches you, because you know what it feels like in the middle of winter to have to set your alarm and wake up and go to work and look outside and see that it is still dark. Now, we can see how this uh, forms, how this slight disjunction between the time outside and the time that we tell that it is begins by looking at another story, the story of the rise of time zones. We've told this in the podcast in the past, and it's a pretty common story in its outline. Before, uh, say, 1850, most places measured time based on what time it was by the sun. You could set up a, a sundial, for instance, and that would tell you what time it was. 
you might have to uh, uh, measure a little bit after noon. There might be some disjunction there, but generally the time that you were telling was based on the place where you were. However, as the national markets started to expand, people at the margins of this started to have some problems when they were trying to coordinate really large scale operations. This doesn't become a real problem until you can travel faster than the speed of the time zone. When you can go from time zone to time zone in a single day so much that it disrupts your business. And that happens, of course, in the railways. Now, there's spectacular moments when this thing doesn't line up. And those are railway crashes, when two railway cars operating on two different time disciplines uh, or two different time regimes run into one another and have an accident. But there's a lot more just general friction that happens when people are living a railway life before railway time. Imagine trying to plan a large trip, for example, where you have to manage transfers when you know, as you're doing that, you have to calculate what time it is in 12 different cities based on each one's, you know, idiosyncratic uh, time regime. The solution to this was Greenwich Mean Time in 1884. There are lots of debates about where to measure time from, because you basically need to draw a line in the earth up and down and say, this is that. This is, this is, this is the point where time begins. And there's a lot of political uh, uh, contestation about it. Uh, France wanted it one place, Germany wanted it another, some, you know, cosmopolitans were suggesting that it be put out in the middle of the ocean, uh, in an island that did not have any other islands on it. On it. Um, but in 1884, the American government convened a conference of uh, uh, railway uh, uh, organizations, and they decided to measure time from the Greenwich Mean. And after that, uh, it was a slow uptake indeed. At first, it was only the railways that adopted these time zones. But then slowly and unevenly, railway time was adopted by other institutions. I want to insist that this was sometimes disruptive. Railway time could disrupt actual local time by as much as half an hour, which could be kind of crucial when you're dealing with, uh, say, trying to get enough daylight uh, in the day to actually get as much work done as you could. And it was just weird. Why are you changing the time? It's obviously the time that it, it says it is when I put a sundial thing out there. That's what time is. The idea that time should be determined by some large institution that is national in scope was a little bit alien. We can see this contestation when we look at how difficult it was to insist on railway time in Indian cities. In Indian cities like Calcutta, uh, there was a lot of struggle trying to impose railway time. This was a city-based struggle. Certain institutions in the city, uh, like government buildings and uh, uh, some social clubs, set their clocks to railway time. Now, they might get around the problems of the disjunction between railway time and actual solar time by, say, changing their opening hours so that uh, they are now more in line with solar time. But other institutions were slow to take it up. So you'd have in one city a multiple time regime sort of situation. 
This really comes to a head in the debates about daylight savings time, which kind of start after uh, I'm done uh, chronologically with this course. But daylight savings time represents the ultimate moment of this triumph of institutionalized time over solar time, because it says we can change what the day is. We can nudge the day a little bit uh, forward or backwards to suit the needs of the economy. Now, zooming up even more from the railway time, we can see how this disjunction of uh, natural rhythm and work rhythm comes when we look at the kinds of cultural formations that rose up around the seasonal rhythms of uh, production and consumption in life. That is holidays. In the traditional world, there were lots of holidays, but most of these were local. Local places would have their feast days, uh, their wakes weeks, um, their local traditions, their football games that would in some ways match up with the calendar of the agricultural year. One big common thing, for instance, was having feasts in winter, usually around Christmas. This was a practical consideration because in winter it's time to kill some animals, and so there's a lot of meat, and the meat is well preserved. It's also a dreary time of year, one where it pays to get together with people in large groups with light and drink and mirth so that you can beat back the depression of the darkness. And also, uh, agriculturally, there's not a ton of work going on at Christmas. Now, always, or for at least since the Roman Empire, there has been a problem with the calendar. And the problem with the calendar can be stated like this. There's always going to be a, uh, a mismatch between the calendar of the seasons and the calendar of the state. This is because the calendar is based on two different systems that don't match up perfectly. That is the cycle of the moon, which happens every 28 odd days, and the cycle of the sun around the earth, which happens every 365 and a quarter days. Now, if you're arranging your calendar to try to mesh up these two natural rhythms, you're going to get days floating around because you can't do it perfectly. It's actually kind of a complicated mathematical problem that requires a lot of thinking, a lot of astronomy, and a lot of organization to solve. And so for much of European life, there is a subtle mismatch between the uh, seasons and the time that the state says it should be. Not a huge mismatch, uh, at all times, but a subtle mismatch. This changes with the adoption of the Gregorian calendar, basically the calendar that we use today, which has 365 days, a number of months that don't really coordinate with the moon at all, and a leap year every four years to make up for that weird quarter day that the Earth takes to take around the sun. This was, by the way, adopted in Britain only rather late, 1756, uh, and there were small riots because it involved cutting out 11 days from the calendar and people went out in the street and complained, give us back our 11 days. As the 18th century moved into the 19th century, 
you start to get a change, however, more deeply in the cycle of national holidays. And that is that a lot of these local holidays start to dry up. It's unclear exactly why. We can just point at the Industrial Revolution and go, the Industrial Revolution did it. It could be because of high rates of urbanization. It might be because these cycles of everyday life were increasingly happening in uh, man-made spaces in which we could bracket out the natural world. For whatever reason, a lot of these holidays stopped happening. And instead, you get the development of a number of national holidays, holidays that are celebrated by everybody in the nation on a particular day, where there's some kind of coordination of national behavior. Big one here is Christmas. Christmas moved from this, you know, odd seven-day, 12-day revel where people would do weird rural practices like sword dancing and electing boy bishops to a practice that took place on a single day where everybody does kind of similar things. In Britain, they eat plum pudding, they play crackers, they might have a Christmas tree after 1850 or so. And this happens nationally. People expect that this holiday is shared by everybody in the nation. When people are, say, off at sea or at prison in a foreign country or, uh, you know, colonizing India, and it comes to December 25th, Often in their diaries, they look wistfully and they go, oh, in Britain, today is Christmas. And there's also rise of new holidays, holidays that mark the nation as a uh, particular body like Guy Fawkes Day, and also odd holidays that celebrate more the domestic life of the middle class, uh, holidays like Father's Day or the rise of Valentine's Day, which is a holiday, says uh, David Hinken, one of my advisors, um, that is tied in with the new kind of effective life that's created by the post office. And similarly, there's a change in our relationship to the seasons. Whereas in traditional working life, uh, people could only work when it was light and when there was enough heat out. Now there was electric lights, and now because of coal, heat could happen whenever, and so work could be extended significantly into the more, you know, crummier months. And yet people do psychically need a holiday. And this is when we start to see the creation of the summer holiday as an independent week. And I, we talked a little bit about this last episode, so I'm not going to go too much into it. So let's switch gears from thinking about the entire year to thinking about that deep, deep cycle of day and night. When we're feeling tired, we are talking about the pull on our bodies from this biological cycle. The circadian rhythms that tell us about this cycle are baked in, not to our brains, but into our very cells. And this is one of those rhythms that just undergird everything that humans as an organism does. We need to sleep. And yet, I don't know about you, but my life is a constant struggle against this need for sleep. I try to take as little sleep as I can so I can work as hard as I can. I am always drinking coffee so that I can beat back the tiredness. And I think that this might be one of those 
uh, moments of the modern condition where we use all of these uh, tools that I've been talking about for this entire course. Drugs, um, technology like electric lights, uh, organizational structures like um, having norms of time discipline, having uh, work hours that are officially set. We use all of that to beat back something that cannot be beaten back, the circadian rhythm buried deep down into us as animals. And even though this is a fight that is in vain, even though a hundred times out of a hundred, technology will lose and we will not be able to conquer sleep, even though I admit that, I also think that the attempt to beat back sleep, the attempt to fill our days with as much useful, interesting, and good stuff as possible probably makes the world a more interesting and full place. So let's think about how this happened. We already talked about how there's a small disjuncture between season time and solar time and the time that it now tells on your clock. But let's now think about how we every day resist the time of the sun. Because this is historical. One big movement is the rise of cheap lighting. We spoke about this in an earlier podcast. Another is the rise of drugs that allow people to stave off sleep. The big one here, of course, is caffeine, the drug that probably you are on right now. And there was something we lost in this. In the early modern world, the night was a separate world. Uh, in market towns, for instance, public areas that uh, in the daytime were thronging with people, in the night were uh, places where ghosts and witches hung out. In the night, the night was dangerous too. There were wolves out and there were highwaymen and you could lose your way. You could be riding your horse through the dark and your horse couldn't get enough light and it could trip and you would die. People died like that. Not like always, but it was quite frequent. The night was dangerous. It was dark. Even in your home, you could not escape the darkness. You might have a candle, you might have, but that shed a dim light and often spluttered out. You had a hearth that had a fire on it, but a big breeze might blow it away. And then you didn't have a lighter, so you'd have to go to your uh, neighbor's house and ask them to give you an ember of their hearth so that you could take it back to your house to light back your hearth. The night was powerful in a way that it is no longer powerful. And in the city, the night was its own special world. You know, it was, it was ruled not by the burghers of the city. It was not a place that was well-ordered. It was not this machine that we think of the city as being. It was chaotic. It was filled with criminals, apprentices, subalterns. And yet, as the world became lighter, as we got our electric lights, our, our uh, gas lights, our whale oil lights, night started to change. Of course, it's a place of work. We know that. But it was also becoming a place of pleasure. A Walpurgis night, a, a, a Halloween of, of, of spectacle and enjoyment 
and drinking and feasting, a place for the young and the adventurous and the people who want to see young, seem young and adventurous. This is the time when rich people start to burn the candle at both ends and have massive dinner parties and go out to the theater and act like socialites. And why do they go into the night? Because the night is another world that they can mark out as their own. A world, unlike the day, for people who don't need to work. And perhaps the most telling metaphor of all of this is the phenomenon of jet lag. That thing caused by the speed of modern transportation, this disjointedness, this pain and suffering that you can feel because your body is not telling you the time that the world is. This shows both the power that we have in the Anthropocene, the amount of stuff that we can do, but also that we're animals who run up against strict limits when we do try to do everything. We are not beyond human. We are not beyond animal for all of these developments. We remain animals who live in their environments, who depend on a network of ecology, plants and animals to feed us, to produce the oxygen that we breathe, to clean the water that we drink. And so all of these developments that I've been telling you about that are usually held up as triumphs of civilization, as the process of genius inventors creating technology, as the result of new political formations that are struggling with other political formations for supremacy, I want to uh, as we say in academia, decenter that, to undermine it, to say, look, yes, that's happening, and it's happening because of ecological changes, because of cheap energy. And yet, all that cheap energy does not end the fact that at night, I need to go into a room and turn off the light and be safe and close my eyes for eight hours. The Empire of Night has not been defeated. It is simply at a truce with us. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of Historian. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate us and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, do all those sorts of things that you do with things on the internet that you like. Thanks very much, and I will see you tomorrow where we're going to be starting another mini-series about the 18th century. 